Tanya, and you are listening to Season 2 of Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored in honor of the yardside of Rachelea Bas Shalom Yeshaya, which was on Dalid Nisan. Rachelea Shusterman was a shlucha in Long Beach, California, and a cherished mora to many. May today's learning merit an aliyah for her neshama. If you would like to sponsor an episode or become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon, please visit the link in the show notes, patreon.com slash human and holy, or email us at humanandholy at gmail.com. Today's episode is the last in our three-part series on Pesach. And as the culmination of our deep dive into freedom, I hosted a small group of women for an elevated interpretation of a mock seder. We had snacks, we had wine, we had crackers that looked like matzah, and we also had the most magical journey through the 15 steps of the Seder. Ideally, the Seder is like a train that you settle into that brings you to another place. The women gathered here today had never spent time together before this mock Seder. And yet, like a group of travelers, embarking on a journey towards freedom. We huddled close, opened our hearts to each other, and went somewhere. Join us as we allow the 15 steps of the Seder to carry us, as we open ourselves up as children, remembering again how to ask. I am so excited to be here. Thank you all so much for coming. This is going to be really fun. We have all the 15 steps on the table or interpretations of them. So I want to basically capture that. I mean, I don't know about you, but personally in school, almost every year in our day school, they would do a model Seder because some students weren't going to experience Pesach. So this is kind of like an interpretation of that, of going through all the steps before Pesach to familiarize ourselves with the steps and with what they mean, but in an adult way, and also with people who are already familiar with the steps of the Seder to deepen our experience of each of those steps. Seder in general is really like an experience. You touch, you taste, you sing, you discuss, you eat the marrow, you cry. It touches all of your senses. So I hope that everyone's going to eat while we talk and it's not just staring at these beautiful props on the table, which is kind of the feeling I'm getting right now. I mean, Ricky they, poured herself some Kaddish. But. Of course. <laughs> okay. So before we go into the steps, I'd love to go around and have everyone introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about you, what you're into, fun facts. I could start. Yeah, go for it. Hey, I'm Hannah Rosa Bogart, live in New Haven area. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I am an artist. I'm a painter. I teach a lot. And I'm excited to get really deep into every single step of the Seder. I think it's a really interesting idea. Hi, I'm Ricky Deitch. I've been living in New Haven for a year and a half now. 
and it's growing on me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) No, it's really nice. I am now in nursing school full time. So it's taking up a nice part of my life. But I love hanging out. I know that's like typical, but I just love it. I love being with people. I love socializing, just really hanging out. Love Shabbasim. It's nice to be here. This is cool. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Malka Schmuckler, and I moved to New Haven the beginning of this school year, so pretty short to me. I had baby two months ago, so that's everything that's going on in my head right now. (laughs) It's the sum total, and I am a teacher when I'm not on maternity leave. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to start with Kaddish. First step of the Seder, pour yourself a cup of wine. Anyone? Cheers. 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 L'chaim. L'chaim. Come on, who wants to clink their glass with me? We're ready nice. like really well. <laughs> <Yeah. for that. laughs> uh, all right, Kaddish. So the four cups of the Seder represent freedom. And the word Kaddish, interestingly, is also those three letters, Kuf, Dalad, Shin, which means separate. And Chassidus teaches us that in order to achieve that freedom that we seek, first we need to separate sometimes in order to like come back into our life and come back into the world with that true definition of freedom. So the message of Kadesh is sometimes you need to separate in order to come back with that perspective. Sometimes you need to go away and distance in order to be able to really experience the freedom of your life. So my question to you, and we'll start with Malka, is where do you mute or pause or elevate your reality? Where do you make yourself kadosh in your life so that you can return to the world or come to the world really in a truly free way? Something that this is sparking in my head is having to do with my phone and technology, because I always was experiencing something like this, but especially just recently after I had a baby, I felt my brain getting so scattered Mm. from just looking at my phone. It just felt like almost an out-of-body experience, not in a good way. It was just very strange. I didn't feel so present with my baby. So I tried for a few days to just totally shut off the notifications and then check it periodically, like when I had time for it. And it made a huge difference. I felt mm. much more grounded and settled in myself. I can't say that I kept it up, but I really want to because I know sometimes if I'm looking at my phone and holding the baby, it just feels like I'm in a different world. And that's scary, actually. You want to be bonded together with your child or with wow. anyone that you are in a relationship with and you're in the same room as them. So when I think about being separate, especially because the phone brings everything outside internally to us. That's something that I think about a lot and I'm working on Hmm. muting that, to use your word, muting the phone more just because I think it makes my life way better. I thought that was a really cool example. I think that so many of us could learn how to do that. Like I, with the whole entire Russia-Ukraine war, there was definitely one day where like I was really spiraling out of control, being really, really involved and like going into all these rabbit holes on Wikipedia. And 
it could really compromise your sanity. It could compromise yeah. the way that you're relating to people in your life. I did end up like going off the news for a few days because it was really impacting me. And this is like a really big example. But in terms of something in my life that I feel like I want to take time and separate in order to reconnect. So this is looking at the question slightly differently. But in my life, I feel like at a certain point, I made a commitment that I was going to live a certain way and like be really connected to Yiddishkeit, to like a way of life, to a family, to like a really specific commitment. Because my personality is one that I'm a bit of a free bird in general. Like I didn't think I would ever settle down or like I'm an artist. Like I wanted to explore and try everything. But when I was pretty young, like I feel like I made that commitment that maybe I'll do that. But first I need to commit fully to like a certain way of being. And then once I did that, I do feel like I have a lot more freedom to explore and to allow myself to look at art, to teach in universities, to be like exposed to the world. Because I feel like since I had that commitment at a certain time in my life, I have that, it's like a safety net. I have my family to ground me. I have my beliefs to ground me. I have my community to ground me. And in a smaller way, like I still need to reconnect. Like I need to have a chavrasa. I need to be able to talk to people who aren't as involved in the world sometimes so that I could see the world through that perspective again and remind myself what my safety net is and what allows me to be as free as I am without losing sense of what is good and what is true. So yeah, that's sort of how I would view that question. Mm. Wow. Wow. Whoa, I know we just started, but I'm mind blown already. <laughs> whoa, both of your answers were like, whoa, that was so gorgeous. I like felt it in my bones. Mm. I really did. It's so interesting that you said that you made a commitment because now I'm thinking that separateness is basically a commitment. Mm. Mm. Like you're committed to something that makes nice. you separate from everything else. But that's the main thing that gives you energy or gives you life. Yeah, I think about it as marriage a lot. I feel like when you're marrying someone, you're cutting off any possibility of having a relationship with anybody else. And that could be terrifying, right? Mm. That's like the idea of wanting to run away from marriage like the day before or whatever, like people get afraid because it's very real. You're shutting off the possibility of anybody else. But in that, there's huge freedom, right? Because you could really allow yourself to explore once you're committed. So I think that's a really good example. Amazing. I love that. Ricky, your turn. Kadesh. Kadesh. So I feel like what I was thinking, just first of all, that moment of those two minutes while you're lighting Shabbos candles, for me, that's my thing. I feel like I'm talking to Shem. That's my separation from everything that's going on in the mm-hmm. world. Finishing class, six o'clock on Friday. And I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. Blah, blah, blah. I'm lighting Shabbos candles and that's my separation and my muting everything. It's Shabbos now. I can't even look at my phone. I can't even do anything. And just internalizing that is, okay, Hashem time, purity time, relaxation time, Kedusha time or whatever. So it's that moment, that two minutes of literally lighting and covering my eyes and then into Shabbos, of course. And it's practical in a way because you're kind of forced to, but Mm. like in the nicest way. Oh, nice. I love that. Separateness as space from your phone, separateness as a commitment to something that's like different than what your environment is really involved in as a way of like grounding. And then separateness, like actually within time that we separate from the sixth day to the seventh, from the week to the day for God. Okay. So Kadesh, 
can someone take a sip of wine? Because, like, we have Mine to actually do this model, Sater. <laughs> yeah. Yours is long it's, gone. It's long okay. gone. I got you guys. Okay. Ricky will, ta- Ricky will take a little great wine. sip for us. All right. Orchatz is when we wash our hands without a brecha before eating the potato or the onion or the vegetable dipped into salt water. And it's actually like the opinion of Tosfos that you're supposed to do that every single time you eat any vegetable dipped in, dipped, (laughs) but most people don't follow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh No, it would, it would be accepted custom, but it isn't. So the question becomes, why are we doing it at the Seder if we don't do it year round? And the answer that is famously given is that we do it so that the kids will ask questions. And this is an answer that is given to so many customs that happen at the Seder so that the kids will ask. So I'm thinking about that curiosity, that childish curiosity that we're trying to spark at the Seder. I think that the message is deeper than just the actual literal children at the Seder, but also the inner child inside of every one of us, that part of us that is full of curiosity and wonder and amazement and looking at the Seder. I remember that feeling as a child, just like the wonder of like, it's Seder night and you put on your nice dress and and you're so excited to eat matzah and even the mar, like all of it was just so full of joy. And that curiosity of like, why do we do this? And why do we do this? And you see like little children, like even toddlers, what is this? What is this? Why does rain fall from the sky? And so to be able to hold on to that sense of wonder within our Yiddishkeit, I think is a really powerful thing. I'd love if you could share in honor of Orchatz, in honor of sparking the children's questions, what do you do in your own life to nurture that curiosity and that sense of wonder about your soul and about God and about all of our beautiful Jewish traditions? I will start with Hannah Rosa. That's a great question. I love the idea. I'm trying to be curious to the idea of curiosity right now mm. and opening myself up to that question. For me, the idea of curiosity is is connected to being present because when I'm doing things out of habit and because it's routine, a lot of things I do end up being that way, especially things that I've, you know, something like the Seder, I've done, you know, like you up with it. You did it so many times. You know what's going to happen next. You're waiting for the next step. And for me, the key to grabbing onto that childlike curiosity is to sort of unknow, to like forget that I know what's going to come next and to Mm. stop focusing on what's going to come next Mm. and to just be still in the moment and go deep in that moment and see what that step that you're in right now, what does it have to teach you? What could it give you? And the same thing goes for the Seder and the same thing goes for Yiddishkeit, right? Like davening, like I know what's going to come next. I'm waiting for Shema. I'm waiting for the end. Mm-hmm. But then you sit with one line and you're like, oh my gosh, this is saying that, for example, Hashem is like infinite. And I could just sit with that for like five seconds. And then you feel like you almost like a shudder go down your spine. You're like, wow, like that's huge. But it takes that moment of I just need to be present right now. So I think that opens up that childlike curiosity because children sort of have that, right? They kind of walk around and they're open and they're not sure what's going to come out in the corner or whatever. They're they're very open in that way. And I think I could do that. Oh my gosh. I love that point. Like when you sit at the Seder as a child, you're not exactly sure what comes next. Like you think you remember, but like Mm -hmm. you're sometimes surprised and you don't know everything. 
And drawing that parallel between nurturing our inner curiosity and the child's experience that just to sit and be so present there is when you can be full of wonder. Because if you're thinking about the end and if you're thinking about the next step, yeah. then there's no room to just be like, so what do I have to learn about Orchats? What is Orchats? Like to me, before thinking about it, I was just like, Orchats, you wash your hands. So the kids will ask, you know, yeah. whatever. I know, I know why we wash our hands, you know. The yeah. way you described presence, it makes me like so excited to like try it out, let's say at the cedar or in different things in Yiddishkeit. And I think a big challenge probably for everyone, but like all adults, but maybe especially for women, because we're, we always have in our head, I need to clear, I need to bring the next mm, course, that's true. A clean up, uh, running this way, that way, like planning ahead and thinking about the past. It makes it much harder nice. and children don't have that responsibility. True. So they're able to be present. So I think it's definitely something to try to work on that. Like when we're at the Seder or when we're in Shul or anything like that, we're able to just zone in and focus. But I think it could take a minute, you know, it doesn't have to be this long hour of commitment. It could be like a second of realization of I'm really here. Like I'm like really living this again. All right, Ricky, Orchats, go for it. Orchats. So building on that children aspect, in a very literal sense, my husband actually taught this to me. When you have a question, ask. I know how simple that sounds, but like, I'm always like, oh, I wonder what this means. Or I wonder why the street signs are like that. And my husband will be like, hey, Google. And he'll ask Google and he'll get an answer. And it like reminds me of like children, like they're in the car and they're like driving by. What's this? What's that? Mommy, what's that? Constantly asking, constantly curious because that's the beauty of children. And just bringing that exact behavior into adulthood or whatever stage you're in. You have a question, something's making you wonder, ask it, ask someone, ask Google. That's the beauty of phones. Like it, everything's so accessible and so easy. And just that starts stimulating your brain. And then your brain like starts working more. And like that just like builds and builds on the curiosity. And like the more you learn, the more you know, the more you're curious and the, mm. the more there is to know. It's cool. It's yeah. cool. I've, I've seen a difference. Nice. I love that. Like actually indulge your curiosity because if you start paying attention, it is there, but you just shut it down. All right. Now we're up to Karpa. You guys going to go wash your hands? No? You guys even, are you even going to do the Seder? <laughs> I'm kidding. Everyone can stay seated. Could <laughs> Drink more they wine. Do, yes. <laughs> drink some water. Yeah. For Carpas, we have some roasted potatoes with some flaky salt. You know, like at the Seder, when Carpas comes around, it's like, can I have another one? You're so hungry at that point. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right? I'll eat the, the raw onions. Potatoes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, give me, I will literally eat the raw onions dipped in salt water. All right. So, Carpas, when we dip a vegetable into salt water, when you dip a vegetable into salt, part of the vegetable's flavor, you could say, is being masked or surrendering to the salt. But in reality, the salt is bringing out the true flavor of the vegetable, right? Like an unsalted potato is like, eh? But a potato with dipped in salt water, now that's a delicacy. No, but salt really brings out the flavor of a vegetable. And the lesson for us is how sometimes that, not sometimes, pretty much every single time for me, that surrender and that bittle, when it's really in a way that's connected to God and connected to my nishama only brings out the truth of who I am. And when I am really connecting from that wholesome space, I begin to see how what seemed to be a surrender and what seemed to be 
letting something else in was actually just bringing out the true me. And not in an abstract, distant way of like, oh, the true me is my soul. And even if I don't feel connected to my soul, then I know it's bringing out the true me. But actually that when I look in the mirror, I feel like this is really who I am. And I really feel it in a deep sense. I'd love if you guys can share where you may have experienced that. Karpas. It's a really big question. You know, it's one of one of those questions that get at who you really are. It gets at what essentially your identity is, you know, and that's like huge. I love how the idea of curiosity sort of taps into the idea of Bittal also, because mm. in order to have that curiosity also, you do need to have a certain ability to let go of what you think you are and what you think you know in order to be brave enough to learn, to really learn. Because mm. Bittal really is about understanding that the way that you think about yourself could also be limiting, right? Mm. It could also have some limitations. If I think of myself as the kind of person that cannot, let's say, teach like for a long time, like I thought because I'm so afraid of speaking in public and speaking in front of people and the imposter syndrome would sort of come in and I can't really do this. I don't know anything. I don't have anything to offer. All of those things are messages that I probably told myself for a very long time because mm. it makes you feel safe. It makes you feel good. But there's a certain bittle that you have to have that says, you know what, like those are the messages that make me feel safe, but they're not good for me. And I have to be humble and realize that Hashem has bigger plans for me and I have more potential and I have to think about that in order to get through the obstacles of my own identity and the way that I think about myself. Once I had that bittle and I was like, you know what, like it's not really about me and whether I'm good enough or whether I have mm. what it takes or whether I have any knowledge or if I have any real ability to do this. But because I know it's the right thing and because I know that like, you know, there's a certain reason why Hashem gave you this life experience and this path, you have to carry on with it and you have to do it. And in the end, I think that those kind of decisions that come from that kind of bravery and humility that you don't necessarily know in the moment what's best for you really do pan out. And for me, they definitely did. That's such a beautiful point. I love it. I love it too. <laughs> it's so good. When I think of Bittal, you're really emptying yourself out. You're taking away all your biases. I'm thinking learning and starting to work in the hospital. You're going in with like, I know nothing. And going in knowing nothing nice. and saying that, you become a sponge and you become like, mm. okay, I know nothing. I'm probably, you know, going to make mistakes, but like that's learning. This is so incredible to hear everyone's perspective on this. The only thing to just add on, it's so interesting that our lives are really built to be always going through this process. Like I feel like as soon as you gain some mastery over some area in your life, then there's just like another curveball or not even a curveball, like just the next stage comes and then it's like, oh, now what? I'm starting from the beginning again and I know nothing again. And I guess that's just the way Hashem wants it to be. That it's such a valuable avida to be working on. I, I love that. It's something that you keep coming back to. You have to constantly relearn. All right. That was Karpas. That was good. That was really good. That was better than the potatoes. <laughs> Yeah.
Kedachat is the part of the Seder when we lift up the middle matzah, crack it in half. Go for it. Oh, that was so good. (laughs) We have these delicious parchment crackers. They're like rosemary flavored. So we split the middle matzah into two, one smaller piece and one larger piece. We set aside the larger piece for the afikomen, and the smaller piece represents the bread of the poor man because it's a broken piece of bread. Like a poor man might not have a full loaf. He might have a small broken piece of bread. So we see that within the same matzah, within the middle matzah, we have both dafi komen, which is the bread of freedom and redemption and salvation, and we have the broken bread, which is the bread of the poor man within the same matzah. And it teaches us this concept that within the same matzah of our lives, we have that brokenness and we have that redemption. The Baal Shem Tov, who brought like the light of Hasidus, which is going to bring Mashiach into this world, used to refer to himself sometimes as Yisrael from couple. He was born in the trenches. He was born to impoverished, poor, simple parents. And sometimes he would remind maybe himself or maybe the people around him where he came from, that from brokenness comes redemption and from brokenness comes the greatest light. Where in your life have you experienced this, that you could directly see where the brokenness or the challenge or the hardship led to that redemption, to that afikomen, to that bread that was nourishing and full of light. So I'm thinking relationships, friendships, all that. We all know, you know, nothing's all rainbows and sunshine. And not only is it not only rainbows and sunshines, but you need those challenges and you want those challenges because at the end of the day, that's what like brings those beautiful times, you know, like there's no connection. And I mean, there is, but like, we all have like those challenges and those and like in the moment, it's shoot, like what's going on or whatever, you know, like arguing with my friend or this is just downhill. And then like once you like figure out and like get through that, it's like, well, we just like jumped 20 levels in our relationship or with your husband or with your kids or whatever it is. So they go hand in hand, the poor bread and the rich bread or, you know, both sides of the matzah, like they complement each other and like you have to work on that, you know, if you're just going to argue and argue and argue and not like, how am I going to find or build that other side of the matzah? That's something you need to work on. It doesn't just, oh, I know that other side is there and I'll come and whatever. I'll have both sides. But it's like knowing there is both sides and I have to work on trying to only go to the richer side and the nicer side, but having those challenges like complement it and could enrich it. And it's beautiful if you see it in that way. Yeah, I feel like relationships is definitely one of those things that test that a lot, a lot, a lot. I sort of wish that you can grow a lot just from not being broken personally. Like it would be nice, but like, unfortunately this is definitely a truth and you have to come to embrace that somehow because you can't really get away from that. Like if you're not going to break, if just like a monster, you're not going to challenge yourself to kind of shatter, shatter something, whether it's your, you know, your ego or whatever, you can't really get to the next step. And like, you do have to do it a million times over and over and over again, because you, we have to grow as people. I also feel like, okay, so I'm going to bring this up just because I feel like as a people, we have a a lot of brokenness as well. Like I I know that my personal family history, there's the Holocaust, there's like, there's just so many difficult things that as Jewish people we had to go through and we're in this country and we have so many opportunities. 
and we're so so strong in our Yiddishkeit, like as a people. Like there's just so many you know shluchim out there, and there's just so so many amazing things happening that wasn't really even happening at the time. I can't help but think that like as a people, even though it's difficult and we we suffer a lot, when people are put in a position of a lot of pressure, either they don't make it, but mm. most of the time, hopefully, they get much stronger from it. I feel like as a people, we've grown, we are very powerful because of this. It's kind of like from the beginning, the source of our strength was in the brokenness that leads to wholeness. It's really strong. All right. So much more here on Yachatz, but Magid really wants to talk. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> let's get to it. Magid. There's so much to focus on in Magi. There's Manashana, Heilachmani, and Dayenu, so many different songs and so many deeper explanations. I want to discuss the broader story of Magid. <laughs> I can't keep a straight face. She's like trying so hard to eat the grape in a quiet way. It's like in class. Yeah, you're just like, don't look at me. But it, it makes it worse when someone's like, eating slowly. It doesn't make yeah. a difference. The crunching is still loud. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's take a second for you to, yeah, yeah. Swallow. They're really yeah. good grapes. They're good grapes. I know. I was like checking out every grape to find what's. What wow. store is this? Edge. No way. Yeah. Edge is surprisingly good. Yeah. And Whole Foods surprisingly bad. Horrible. Don't take it off. <laughs> also extremely expensive. Oh my gosh. Like it's literally $50 for three things. Yeah. <laughs> but if you drop something, they clean it up right away. Okay. So nice. that's, it's also like a nice shopping experience. It's right. therapeutic, but yeah. but not once you uh, check out. Check out. <laughs> <laughs> like that's therapy. <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> it's like if therapy is draining your bank account and then, you know, so... Seek more therapy. Right. <laughs> so within Magid, we're going to focus. Magid is really like the story of our exodus. It's when we really talk about what it meant for us to leave Mitzrayim then, what it was like to be slaves, what it was like to be freed by God. It's the story of us leaving Egypt, and it's the story of the Jewish people. Very often in Torah, we find our meaning through story. Most of the Torah is really story. And through the story, we find the Jewish soul. And you see that in Magid, is that through story, we're finding the soul of Judaism. And the word Haggadah comes from Begadah Talabin Khan, you should teach your children. And very often, as children, we learn the Torah as a story, as historical event that happened. And sometimes what happens, I think, as Jews, we focus so much on making we focus so much on making sure our kids go to Jewish school. And then we become adults. And I don't know if we focus so much on us going to school, <laughs> on us maintaining that Jewish education. That's what I want to discuss a little bit today. That Jewish story that we teach our children and sometimes it remains that like abstract story. Like when you're 30 years old and you're looking at the story you learned when you were six and you're like, it seems so flat. Like, where's the meaning there? Because you learned it when you were six and that was appropriate when you were six, but now you're 30 and you have a completely different life perspective and it's time to learn again. So if here we are teaching the Jewish story to our children as a means of imparting the soul of Judaism, how can we continue to educate ourselves to learn the Jewish story how can we essentially continue sending ourselves to Jewish day school, continue, you know, prioritizing, learning about our Yiddishkeit, learning about God, learning about the Jews' 
history and what that means today? To me, one of the great ways to do it is to put yourself in a position where you have to teach something. Mm. So if you're an actual teacher, it could be if you're teaching your own children or just at your Shabbos table, you want to know what the Parsha of the week is, which honestly, sometimes I don't know what it is. So if you challenge yourself and just set something up that like, I have to share this with somebody else, teach it to somebody else, then you will learn because you have that sort of pressure. The other thing, just really practical thing, like when you're cleaning up the house, which is so boring and so annoying, you can put on a recording, a podcast and learn something. I love that. Super practical. And as you were saying that, I'm thinking learning styles and I'm thinking like when I'm studying and I'm learning, I don't have anyone to teach it to, but like I teach it to myself. Like I talk out loud and Mm. I'm just like reading over the information as if I'm teaching to someone. And I did teach for a little bit and you learn so much by teaching, so much by giving. A little cute thing that like we do when we go out to eat is like the food comes out and what you want to do is like, just like yum and eat that like delicious food in a restaurant. And we're like, no, we're saying, hey, I'm, I'm. And just stopping and we're Jewish and we're from, and this is like who we are. We're not jumping to like eat this food. It's in front of us. It could be there and we're hungry, but let's say, hey, I'm, I'm, or let's read a bit of the Tanya or something just to like, this is who we are. This is a part of our life. This is what's priority. And then we'll mm. eat. I love that. That's a really nice idea. So I think that in general, I'm kind of an ideas person. So like, it's really important for me to be learning something because if I'm not learning Tyra specifically, then like my mind is going to be filling with all sorts of other ideas. I love reading. I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly listening to stuff. I'm teaching. So for me, it is incredibly important to have a chabrasa. I can't say that I always have one right now. Like even today, I reached out to a friend of mine and we're going to start learning again. I'll try to find a mimer that's like sort of easy enough to tackle in a few sessions that doesn't end up being like impossible to get through, Mm. but not like a short and simple thing because for me, it it just doesn't do that much for me. Like I really need to be like puzzled and confused and really digging through the material and trying to figure out what is the message and what is being said. It really is hard to find time. But I do know that if I don't, I do end up feeling less and less connected because my mind just like fills up. It just fills up. I'm constantly thinking about stuff. And I know that's not like, not everyone needs to have this kind of like heavy chavrasa, but for me, I feel like it's super important. Yeah, it's personal. That's awesome. Yeah, I love how different everyone is. All right. Rachta motzi matzah. So we're just going to lump all those together. It's basically the washing, the making the bracha on matzah and eating the matzah, which is all the mitzvah of matzah. Obviously, there's so much we could get into here. Bread of faith, bread of healing, bread of humility, you know, because it's not a dough that rises, etc. What I want to talk about today is why we eat matzah. We eat matzah because the Jews had to leave in a rush. Hashem made these 10 plagues and then suddenly... It was all over and they went from being like slaves to running out of Egypt with dough on their backs. So the first Yitzhiz Mitzrayim was really, really quick. And you could say that they didn't necessarily have the time to internalize their freedom. Now we are experiencing our own Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, our own process of coming from Gullus to Geula and coming into that state of redemption, but it's happening in a very different way. It's very integrated. It's slow. It's a process. We're not running out with nothing on our backs. 
we're slowly trying to incorporate the godly and God is not just revealing himself to us either. We're slowly trying to incorporate the godly reality into our life to bring the redemption into our life and make this world receptive to that obviously like greater and broader gula reflective of our own personal ones. But I'd love if you could share where in your life you experience that process of slow integration, where it's not just a one quick fix, where you're constantly coming back and trying to deepen the awareness and the understanding and the redemption, but it is still a Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, just a slower one and one that's more integrated with who you are. I definitely think that you could see the change or the integration or the redemption in hindsight much more easily than as you're going through it and just practically in our little everyday moments because our whole day and our and then therefore our whole lives are just these little moments and little actions. I think what's amazing is that having intentions behind the actions could transform them into something totally different. Like I remember learning this in Tanya and the first time I learned it, I don't think I understood it at all or not the way I understand it now. The idea that all of our mundane actions are they're like neutral. And then when you interact with them, you either bring them up or pull them down. And when I first heard that, it just sounded like, okay, that's scary. So better like be really careful with all the things because I don't want to like push it down into um, or anything. But with like a more mature perspective, I think that's really empowering and really crazy because what that means is that you could be doing such simple, basic actions. And if you just put some intention into it, mm. thought and channel it towards Hashem, and especially as mothers, most of the day is filled with just physical tasks. If there's like a little bit of thought behind that, it literally makes it holy. Let's say feeding a child or doing yeah. laundry. The thought behind that is I am nourishing an Hashem. I'm allowing a soul to live and do a mission in the world. That type of thought for me yeah. is really powerful. And then also at the end of the day, I look back. Mm. It's not like, oh, I just did a series of really boring physical actions. But it's like, oh, wow, I just took care of Hashem's child. And it just shifts it for me. Maror, the bitter herbs that we eat. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Gets ready. So we have some jalapeno chips, anyone? A little bit of spice. They won't make you cry because, like, they put sugar in them. A lot of sugar. Yeah. But they're still kind of spicy if you have... I'll do it for the crunch. Yeah, do it for the crunch. <laughs> Ricky, go. No. Do the crunch. Right <laughs> <laughs> I can pretend that it's jalapeno. Yeah. Oh, you're eating the cracker. You're eating the matzah. Okay. Maror. So why do we eat Mara at the Seder? We eat Mara at the Seder to commemorate the slavery and the trauma and genocide that was happening in the <laughs> And which like my really? favorite topic. <laughs> we got something heavy, but really it begs the question. Maror is a fraction of what they actually experienced. How are we trying to in any way elicit the actual suffering and tragedy that happened in Mitzrayim through eating lettuce and a little bit of horseradish, you know? And a really beautiful explanation that I saw given was that just like when someone else is experiencing real suffering, tragedy, 
challenge in their life, you cannot experience the extent of it with them, not only because you physically can't, but also because you have your own life and it's not, it's, it wouldn't even be appropriate if you could technically do that. You can still join them in their suffering to really provide true empathy so that you're not outside of their experience, but you could really sit with them in their pain. Like when you see real grief to really be able to look it in the eye and sit with someone in their pain. So Mara in that way is us doing that to the tragedy, the genocide, the slavery, like the real torture that they experienced in Mitzrayim. I'd love if we could discuss how we in our own lives could try to encourage that empathy within ourselves to go outside of ourselves a little bit and to join another person in their experience of challenge or suffering when our instinct is to look away and our instinct is not to eat the mar with them and not to really experience the challenge at all, even just a little bit, even just mar in comparison to slavery. Applying it to our own life, I would take the idea of bittal in order to, you know, feel for someone and really be there for someone. You kind of need to take your own prejudices away and judgments. You have those like preconceived notions of whatever you think you could handle and like mm. you put that on them. So by becoming bittal, you again take that, you like empty yourself to try the best you can to like put yourself in their shoes and like feel for them, really feel for them. Beautiful. I'm just going to throw out another thought that builds really on what you're saying, Ricky. It's nothing conclusive because it, it's always in the situation. You have to determine what's going on. But I think maybe now we as a society, or maybe just me, I don't know, we have a tendency to not want to pry into other people's lives and pain. But part of the bitchal idea is just thinking, is it that I feel uncomfortable with asking that question because I don't want to be seen as someone who's prying or I actually think that person would mind or would they appreciate that someone's looking out for them? I think we're very self-conscious in the way that we empathize. So trying to really dial it down about like, it's actually not about you at all. Just like about them looking at the other person and being like, well, what, what are their needs right now? And could I meet those needs for them? Not for me. Nice. I see that in the hospital a lot when like a patient is not happy to be there and they're crying out to you and they're, and it's very easy to say, you're going to be okay. Like, don't worry, you'll get through this. But like, they want empathy. They want you to be there with them. They want you to feel with them, you know, as much as you could. But like, and then I find myself falling into the, what should I say? Like, am I not saying the right thing? And then you just, whoa, like hit on such a point of like, it's not about you. Like what? It's about them. Like, don't worry. Are you saying the right thing? Are you this? It's about them. So, wow. All right, Korah. Sandwich. <laughs> so we have like dates <laughs> stuffed with almond butter. Anyone want? Yeah. Yeah? Take one. All right. So have you ever wondered, have you ever asked why we eat matzah and then we eat mar and then we eat matzah and mar together? Well, so the great sage Hillel, he thought that we should be eating matzah, mar, and the carbon pesach all together. But the other sages of the time disagreed with that. And what I love here is that they didn't like figure out a way to compromise. There wasn't like a middle road that they took. They actually just said, okay, we'll do both. We'll eat the matzah, then we'll eat the mar, then we'll eat karach. To me, that is a perspective that is so simple and basic, but really brilliant. And I think could solve a lot of family feuds. 
and other feuds, that concept that like two people disagree and they have completely different perspectives of how it should be done. And instead of trying to compromise, why don't we just do both? You want this custom, I want this custom. Maybe there's space for both. Maybe there's room for both of us to fully be expressed within this one individual experience of the Seder. So that being said, I'd love if you could share any examples in your own life where you have been able to do that. Not to try to like push and pull from both directions, which obviously very often is actually what's necessary, but sometimes to be able to make space for two whole separate opinions to remain intact as they are, two different perspectives, and to really exist fully. Where have you been able to do that? Have you been able to do that? Have you seen it done? Matzamar and then Korach, Matzamar together. Well, this one, it's interesting because we often meet people and we have different perspectives. And in order to hold on to two separate perspectives and not compromise by losing one of the perspectives, we need to have something that's larger than both of them that mm. unites both perspectives somehow. Nice. So if I was going to bring it to things in my life, I feel like I come from my family and my husband comes from a different kind of family and we do a lot of things very differently. We were raised very differently. And there are so many situations where I'll see things one way and he'll see things like almost entirely the opposite way because of difference in, ra- in being raised. But because of this commitment that we're going to raise our children together and we're going to be living in harmony together then it's not easy, but it's very clear how to go ahead with having respect to what the other person believes because of that commitment. And there really is room for multiple ways of seeing things. Like I feel like we get kind of stuck in our way of seeing things. And sometimes you convince ourselves that this is the right way. This is the only way. Other people who do things differently are wrong. And that's just not the way of the world. Like There are multiple ways of seeing things even if they're not the way that I see them. Nice. That's good. But I also wanted to bring it into working in not a Jewish environment. Mm. It kind of is like two different perspectives or two different lives where like it's very easy to fall into a compromise and fall into like, especially what my uniform is, pants. That's the uniform, you know, and it's so cute. Like scrubs, you know, like it's so cute. And that's the culture and that's the way it's done and that's just like what you see and like there's you know that's how everyone's dressed and Mm. it's like I could find a compromise and like people do it and it's okay and maybe I could get a hetero and like you know like all these things that like are okay and like I could do it and it's fine and then I was going to and then I decided to wear a skirt and it's like when I heard that question I hear I see my Jewish and Yiddish guy and my secular life and my career you know and those Mm. are two separate entities that I'm keeping both of those entities fully together. Mm-hmm. So that's how I see it. That's so inspiring. That's not easy. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So Shulchan Aruch, we eat a festive meal. So we've been focusing on like the freedom in all the steps of the Seder, like the freedom from something. And now it's like the freedom to, which is the Yom Tif meal. And we see very often in Hasidus this stress that when we do something because God asked us to do it, even if to us it seems like such a physical act, it's actually a very beautiful elevated experience. So you're having this festive meal, you're eating good food, meat, wine, 
just like a beautiful, gorgeous Yantav Suda. And it's so holy. And this is freedom. And this is for God. So all that freedom, all that work that we've been doing throughout the Seder to come to that freedom is bringing us to this place where we can experience the physical world in a way that's truly godly, the way that we experience a meal on Shabbos or on Yom Tif in a way that's truly for God. I would love if you could share something in your life that seems to be completely physical, full of pleasure, enjoyment. You're socializing, you're eating good food, you're drinking wine, and it's purely for God. And it's just like the Shulchan Aruch at the Seder. It's that freedom. It's that togetherness with God. It's it's a beautiful, holy experience. So working out and eating healthy is something that seems really physical. It's really, you know, you're feeding the body and you're making the body healthy by exercising. But it brings such joy and it brings me to a place of calm and happiness and gives me so much energy. So for me, it really becomes something that is godly. You could do it just because everybody else does it and because it's something that makes you happy. But you could also have that added in, in, intention behind it where you're really focused on like, this is the body that I was given to by Hashem, right? And this is the only one I have. And in order to keep being in this world and in order to be doing the right thing, then I have to make it strong and I have to make it happy. And I think it is one of those things that you do need an intention for it because you could get really lost in it. So that's my take. Nice. I love that. And I love that perspective. And it brings like another why you should work out and why you should eat healthy. Just adding on what I feel is the answer to that question is making Shabbos, like the whole process of it. Once you see it as like have meat on Shabbos to to sanctify it or whatever to like the next level. And like, I love doing it. I love cooking in the kitchen on Friday with my podcast and my music. And you're not just like making a meal, you're making like something holy, mm. you know? So it's like something you love doing and like you're doing it for time. You're spending money, but like for Kedusha, you know, it's like taking like something you're doing every night, every week, every day, but this time you're doing it for like such a beautiful, holy thing and you're presenting it nicely and you're, you know, you're making it like prettier than every day and you're making more food and it's just more like lavish. So that's what resonates with me for that example of purely God, you know? Yeah. I love that. So now we've finished eating the delicious meal, and now it's tuffin. And tuffin is something that you eat after the meal. You eat that afikoman, you eat that large piece of matzah that we set aside, the bread of redemption, and you're full, you're stuffed when you're eating the matzah, signifying that the mitzvah is done purely for God. That we're eating this matzah, not for our own pleasure, not because we're hungry, not because we're going to enjoy it, but just because God asks us to eat this matzah. He asks us to eat this afikoman. So it's kind of like the inverse of the previous question, because both really are so valuable in our lives. On the one hand, the things that we take so much pleasure in and, and so much enjoyment. And then what are those mitzvahs that for you are tzafon, are the afikoman, that you eat them when you're full and you're really, truly doing it just for God? So interesting. And no specific mitzvah is jumping out at me because I think we also take a lot of enjoyment in different aspects of different mitzvahs. But one area which I think applies to many mitzvahs or many areas is 
consulting with a Rav, mm. for me, that's just totally for Hashem because sometimes it's so uncomfortable to call and explain your whole situation. It's like, how did you even get yourself in that situation? Mm. And it's much easier if we were just doing it ourselves. Okay, I'll just throw out this food, like whatever. Why do I need to call and explain or call a few times about the same thing? And for me, I really think that my motivation in that moment is like Hashem wants me to do this. So it's for him. Nice. Sneas is something that is a challenge. Clothes are very expressive and you want to look a certain way. And, you know, it's difficult to be limited in that way. And like, so in the end, like the reason why I'm doing is because it's a mitzvah, right? I could find enjoyment in it. I think that's my challenge is to, even if something is like not having enjoyment, to find the things about it that is enjoyable because otherwise it's really hard for me to do things that I really, really, really don't enjoy. So like I need to be creative And I think about limitations as being something that helps with creativity. So for example, with Sneas, if I have to wear skirts and I'm going to find like really cool styles. And if I have to wear, if I have to wear a shaitol, then I'll find, I'll cut it in a style that I like. So I wore a pixie cut for a bunch of years. Now, like I have, you know, really short bangs. So like I try to have fun with it because that's where I'm going to find enjoyment. I love colors. So like I'll lean into that because there's definitely room within Sneas to be expressive is just still a big challenge and one that you deal with every single day because you get dressed every single day and you could always decide to go a little shorter or a little tighter. And it really is something that you have to remind yourself, like, this is my identity. This is another source of pleasure in Sneas, by the way. Mm. Like the idea of like, okay, my husband looks like he's a Jewish man and I could look like I'm not. I could look like everybody else. But there is a pleasure in like being really strong with who I am. Like I'm a Jewish woman and I'm representing the Jewish people. And therefore, that is a joy in Sneas that like I have that identity. Beautiful. So we're almost at the end of the Seder. Now we're benching. It's Beirach. Time to, you know, say thank you to God for the delicious food. All right. So very simply, how do you incorporate gratitude into your life? Gratitude for God's blessings. I tend to forget about how lucky I am. So like, even if for a moment I feel, let's say like I'm working towards a goal and I get that goal and I celebrate. And then within like two months, I'm back to that place of narrowness and like, Mm. I don't have enough. That wasn't even that amazing. (laughs) And what's next? And what am I lacking? And what's my next goal? You just remind yourself like, wow, like you got there and you were really happy and now you're there. And it does make me feel a lot more grateful. Same thing goes with all the other blessings that I have in my life. They feel a lot more like blessings when they first arrive. Yeah. And then I get used to it. Yeah. My instincts always is whenever something good happens or like something I'm worried about gets figured out, what's my next worry? Mm. What's my next, you know, like my mother makes fun of me for it. Like I tell her like, oh, I got, I got such a good grade or whatever. She's like, okay, what's now? Like, what are we Mm. worrying about now? You know? Same. And that's such a terrible like trap to fall into. I can get so stuck in such a whirlwind in my head of like, but I need this and I'm worried about this. And like the second something good happens, I'm like, very nice. But Mm. Like, I understand. I'm so grateful for this, but 
And there's mm. that but there that's just preventing me from appreciating all the good things I have because of this one thing that's worrying me or bothering me. There's always going to be a but. There's always going to be something to worry about. Mm. There's always going to be a challenge in your life. And it's learning how to deal with the fact that there will always be a challenge. And that comes with appreciating what you do have, I think. And like, I have so many people in my life and so many, we have so many skills of our own to be able to like, be grateful for that to work through life's, whatever life throws at you, you know? Yeah. I wonder if something that could be helpful to that, which I definitely experience, I think a lot of us do, is shifting our gratitude away from being only about things that we have and like accomplishments and towards things that are like more internal. So what I mean by that is instead of, I'm so grateful that I moved into like a bigger house. It could be like, I'm so grateful that I was able to find presence today with my family and I was able to really appreciate the moment. So obviously there's place for gratitude for the physical things, but I think very often when you're making a gratitude list or you're trying to think about what you're grateful for, it's like, I'm grateful for health, I'm grateful for money, I'm grateful for home, I'm grateful for food, like all those things which are beautiful, but sometimes it's like, okay, but I also need another, I'm grateful for the dresses I do have, but I need another one. But like, I'm grateful for the presence I had today doesn't bring this feeling of lack, okay, but I need more. It just brings this feeling of wholeness. Because there's no but after I, f- I was present today. Like it's you. It's not like an outside fact. I love that. Yeah. All right. So thank you, Hashem. <laughs> you said Beira. <laughs> now we're up to Halal and Yirza, which personally, let's, uh, let, let's get the tambourine. Oh. oh, it's here. It's like... Camouflaged. Yeah, it's camouflaged. Come on. Do something fun. That was good. All right. Halal and Yirza, personally, one of my favorite parts of the Seder. And if it's not your favorite part of the Seder, then you're probably not a night person and you're just exhausted because it's actually gorgeous. When everyone just starts to sing together and we just praise and celebrate Hashem, to me, it's like this pure expression of a Jew calling out to God, in that joyful way that to me is very much the story of the Jewish people. Obviously we have that brokenness and we have that hardship and as part of our lives and also as part of the Jewish story. But I think that underneath it all is just this love and excitement and gratitude and and praise of Hashem that we experience. There's someone actually that I follow on Instagram. Her name is Menucha Belkin. And nearly every Rosh Chodesh, I think, or I've noticed that many Rosh Chodesh, she posts of herself saying hollow from a beautiful place in nature. And it really strikes me because I think about how when you're in nature, you have this feeling of just this hollow kind of bubbles up inside of you. And it's a real natural outpouring of celebration of God because you feel like you can sense him more when you see his greatness expressed in beautiful, natural wonders. And David Amalek wrote to Hillam, and it's really this natural outpouring of David Amalek's expression of love towards God. So that hollow, that praise, that celebration, where have you experienced that in your life in that way that it kind of like just tumbled out of you? It was just like, there you are, God, and I celebrate you. I think the strongest natural outpouring of gratitude is with the birth of my children, because it's just magical, you know? It's so much love that you feel. It's almost like pain, you know, like it's just so intense. 
And it also has within it the feeling of divinity because you feel like it's a miracle that happened. It doesn't feel possible, and then it's possible. And that, by its very definition, is like a miracle when you really, really Beautiful. don't know what's going to be, and then it happens. Yeah. I can't talk about it. <laughs> I can't say everything. so powerful. <laughs> On a very literal sense, Halonerza, where I feel God and feel that is Halonerza, is singing, is at these big Shabbos meals mm-hmm. at my table where everyone's just singing. And I remember that day, Shalom Raboshkin, this, when he was released from prison and like, the joy that was spread throughout Jews of all different types of Jews that just on the streets felt in their heart. Like everyone just felt it and just wanted to sing, but like on a more everyday level, like those Shabbos meals, those music, music really singing and Jewish songs, Jewish music, Nagunim, that really hits the soul. Like it's the pen to the soul. It hits the soul. So when you're having a bunch of, bunch of Jews nothing else distracting them, just singing, just hanging out, just like expressing their soul. For me, that's like when I get that feeling of like, whoa. Oh, I love that, Ricky. And it's so interesting that you like really pinpointed something there, how when you sing Halal Nirza, when you like literally are like singing this at the Seder or just whenever you're singing, praising Hashem, celebrating Hashem, it arouses that feeling inside of you. So sometimes you have to show up to do it, you know, just show up to the Seder and then just start singing and those emotions will well up inside of you because it's there. Yeah. It's very beautiful. All right. L'shana habavi Yerushalayim. (laughs) That was beautiful. That was a magical conversation. I felt the energy in the room. I feel it in my heart, like in a weird way, like we just settled into something, you know? Yeah. It's like weird. It's like, I don't know, like swimming in in it, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Kadesh, I lift myself up above the world. Orchats, I return to my life with curiosity. Karpas, I immerse myself in your waters. Yachats, I hold what is broken alongside what is whole. Magid, I will be a part of the story of the Jewish people. Matzah, I will stretch slowly into my soul's freedom. Maru, I will not look away when I see you suffer. Korach, I will make room to hold both at my table. Shulchanarach, I will delight in the godly experience of a physical world. Tzafun, I will come back to this matzah even when I feel full. Beirach, I will say thank you. Halal and Nirza, I will let the song of your praise bubble up within me. Like King David, I will stand in the field and sing. Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha mechabed nishmati tamidilecha mechabed mechabed.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail.com. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.